Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. It's been a little over a week now since the commercial industry has informed us that Christmas season has officially started. And uh, in light of that, we understand that Christmas apparently begins every year on Black Friday, but in efforts to boost the sales of things because of COVID, it actually started probably right after Halloween, like the beginning of November. So this year uh, has certainly been different. And the Christmas season has not been immune to this. There's been various different changes with COVID. I'm sure that it's affected you in some way or another. In fact, there's a lot of people, because of the economy, there's been less spending. Matter of fact, there was an article that came out this past week, and they said they were concerned because of Black Friday sales and, and also Cyber Monday that sales overall were down 14%. And I guess one of the positives that COVID has done for us is has made Americans realize that we don't need that much stuff. We just don't need that much stuff in order to have a good time at Christmas. And we understand that as, Christmas, as Christians, we know that Christmas is not about the material items. It's, it's not the true meaning of Christmas. But disappointment has certainly raised its ugly head as hearts of many and families and social gatherings have been canceled. Christmas concerts have been canceled. Travel plans have been canceled. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but uh, if you're going to fly, I don't know what the recommendations are right now, but I guess now is the time to do it because there's nobody in the airport. So I'll just throw that out there. But I don't know if you're supposed to travel, so don't disrespect or disobey the government. You're not supposed to. Don't travel. All right, we'll continue on. Christmas concerts have been canceled. Traveling plans have been changed, as well as many other traditions. For all intents and purposes, COVID has certainly canceled Christmas, or at least Christmas how many people understand it to be. But perhaps the most disheartening thing about this entire year isn't the changes that Christmas brings or the changes that uh, COVID brings to Christmas or the plans. It's the seeming silence that people have experienced from God through this whole entire pandemic. People have been crying out more or less since March for God to bring relief. People have lost their jobs. They have lost loved ones. They've gone into financial hardship. They've experienced severe anxiety and depression. They've lost friendships. And it can all, majority of it, can be traced back somehow to COVID-19. And on top of the pandemic, we aren't even mentioning the fact that our nation has gone through some serious political unrest, severe racial tension, unprecedented a number of hurricanes, forest fires. They had another one in California this past week and other natural disasters. The year 2020 is certainly one that will go down in the history books. So as people try to make sense of all of this crazy stuff happening, they question the sovereignty and the power of God. And it's not just those that are new Christians that question that. The, the, the questioning of what God is trying to do goes over the entire spectrum of Christian growth from those that are even some of the most mature Christians. Matter of fact, this past Thursday, I had a phone call with about eight or so local pastors, and we've not had a phone call like this yet. And I could see several of them break down on this Zoom call as they were expressing the hardship as they were experiencing, not only with the people in their church, but broken at just what God was doing through this pandemic. And some of them expressed in, in so many words that they were really struggling with what God was trying to do. And it's breaking people. And if there was ever a time within our lifetime to question the sovereignty of God, it's perhaps this year. God, what are you doing? 
And I was praying about a series in which God uh, could, could talk about or, or lay upon my heart that we could discuss over Christmas. I, I wanted to be careful because I didn't want to talk about the same thing we talk about every single year at Christmas, which is good. I mean, the Christmas story is obviously good. It's great. It's fantastic. But that old familiar saying, familiarity breeds contempt, I didn't want that to be the case for Christmas this year. As I was looking at this, as I was praying in light of 2020, as I was continue, uh, to continue to pray about this, God laid something upon my heart uh, that is more or less new. And I don't mean that in an unscriptural way, because we know that anything new outside of the Scriptures is false, but something perhaps that I at least have never thought about in light of Christmas before. But in light of this entire year, I know that this is, can be a tremendous encouragement for all of us. So as I continue to pray in light of a series regarding this cancel-friendly year, my attention was directed to the overall biblical narrative leading up to the single greatest event, one of the single greatest events in all of history, and that is the birth of our Savior. This is what Advent is. It's the anticipation of the arrival of our Savior. Now, since we live in 2020 A.D., it means that we live after the birth of Christ. Therefore, we have the privilege of celebrating the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. But if you were to trace all the way back into the very beginning of the Old Testament, roughly 2,410 B.C., you would encounter the time in which God first promised a Redeemer. And we see this really specifically in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God says to Abraham, And these shall all families of the earth be blessed. God made that initial promise roughly 2,400 years before the birth of Christ. And I can only imagine that from that time period until the birth of Christ, there were times in which people doubted whether or not God was going to fulfill this plan. God, you said what you said, but are you really going to come through with your promises? Living in the B.C. time period, the Jews probably thought that God's promises would never be fulfilled, that He's no longer in control, He's no longer on the throne. Matter of fact, if you were to look through the Old Testament, you can see that the Jews thought that multiple times, which is why they turned their backs on God over and over and over again. So when looking at how God directed His promises, if you were to look through Advent all throughout the Old Testament and place that into light of what we're facing today, it should bring encouragement to us. I was talking about uh, this with somebody last night. Think about just the year 2020. Think about just what COVID itself has done to the entire world. And put that into the biblical narrative of what the end times are going to bring to us. Think about COVID, right? It's forcing the entire world to more or less go into this global type of economy. Things are being shut down. Social media and media is on the rise. Therefore, when the Antichrist comes to power, giving that much more control to the Antichrist. The world is longing and looking for a leader, a one-world leader. It's happening right before our eyes. Think about it this way. This is kind of a side note here, but I want to put this in perspective. You've got the vaccine right now, the vaccine that has just been delivered, and there's been a lot of controversy regarding this vaccine. But some of you have seen news reports that unless you have a vaccine, you're not going to be allowed to do certain things like go to concerts, go to ball games. That's what they're talking about right now. Health workers have to get the vaccine. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast, but I want to, I want to share something right here with you. They may not force you to get the vaccine, but they're going to make a way and they could make a way for you not to be allowed to do certain things unless you have proof that you've been vaccinated. The UK just said uh, recently that you're not allowed to fly unless you've been vaccinated. Think about the mark of the beast. 
You're not going to be able to buy and sell unless you have that mark of the beast. What I'm trying to share with you here, folks, is I'm not saying the rapture is going to happen next year. We don't know when that's going to be. But what I'm saying is 2020 is unfolding prophecy right before our very eyes. And if we can look at this in light of Scripture here, yes, 2020 is a hard year. But it should, it should be an exciting year because God is literally fulfilling things and elements of His Word. And so, hence the reason why we have entitled our 2020 Christmas season, Christmas isn't canceled. It isn't canceled. Even though all throughout the Old Testament, it looks like it would be. The beginning seers will approach this overall biblical narrative. It's going to be a little bit different because usually what we do is we go to one specific passage and we preach through that. But in order to really fully understand the biblical narrative, we're going to be preaching through several different specific passages, obviously all within context. So throughout the course of this study, though, there are several different mile markers that really highlight the fulfillment of God's overall plan of redemption. And so what we're going to do to really... Um, comprehend what's going on here is we're going to look at 16 total mile markers over the course of the next several weeks that show to us that even when Satan was doing his absolute very best to overthrow God's plan, God was always 1,800 steps ahead of him. And that brings incursion to our hearts. So with that being said, take your Bibles here to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is really the launching point for our journey to Christmas. The entire chapter, and I did want to mention, um, if you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to take the one that's in front of you and, and one of those pews there. If you don't have one at all, take it home with you. That's our gift to you. And so there's a Bible in front of you, unless you're sitting in Mr. Russ's row. Um, I don't know if there's a Bible in front of you, so good thing you have yours. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see this launching point. We know that the whole entire chapter is really one of the most sobering chapters in all of Scripture. It's the fall of man. They were created in perfection. Mankind chose to disobey God and the aid of the one fruit that they were told not to eat of. And sin and corruption enters into the world. I shared this story a couple of months ago. A friend called me as he was working through his devotions, and he had a question. He's been saved for just a few years, um, but really just been, God's been doing a great, heart, uh, great work in his heart. He said, at what point did God pivot from using the law to redeem mankind to sending his son? In other words... His question was, when did God decide to send His Son in order to address man's problem of sin? And my response to him was, God's plan for Christmas was established from the very beginning of time. And we see that here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So if you could stand with me out of respect of God's Word, we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, above thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see this first reference to God's promise to restore mankind indicating that God's plan for Christmas was established from the very beginning, which leads us to the title of our first message within this series, God's Plan from the Very Beginning. Thank you. You may be seated. God's Plan from the Very Beginning. As I mentioned earlier, in order to really grasp this whole entire biblical narrative, it's going to be a lot, but I'm going to do the best I can to break this down and highlight certain parts leading up to the birth of Christ. We're going to fly over the pages of Scripture to observe these intricate details of God's plan. We have to understand that this whole entire Bible is a book that is written with one overall story thread, and that is God's love for mankind. That's the entire theme of the Bible, is God's pursuit of man. 
And so we're going to look at 16 mile markers. We're going to look at the first six here this morning. So here's the first one. The first mile marker is the promised seed. The promised seed. Back in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, we see a lot going on here in the scripture. There's a lot. God said that there would be enmity between the seed of a man and the seed of Satan, and there would be a bruising of the head and the bruising of the heel. And for any casual Bible reader, they could read this and think, what in the world is going on here in this particular verse? But as I was, or God was doing this, really, this, this verse here and laying it all out, what he's doing in this one single verse, if there's somebody, is there somebody trying to come in there? It's a flag? Okay. If there is, you can just open it up. Um, Maybe Mr. Russ can do that, <laughs> just in case of somebody crazy. But what God was doing in this overall storyline here is he's laying out the plot of the entire gospel. This is the plot right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You can see this, this entire plot. It's talking about this tension that's happening here. For example, this verse is specifically addressed to Satan, not to mankind. Maybe ask yourself, I thought it was talking about a snake here. Yes, it's true that it's talking about a snake he took, or Satan took on the form of a serpent, but God specifically addresses the reptile itself in verse 14, saying you're going to crawl on your belly. But when we get into verse 15, he shifts then to his focus upon Satan. We know that scripture refers to Satan as a serpent, Revelation chapter 12, verse 19. God told Satan that he would put enmity between him, his seed, and her seed. And this word enmity comes from the Hebrew word which means to hate. What God is doing is he's foreshadowing this intense spiritual battle that will take place between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God all throughout eternity until the end of the millennial reign. God is stating the fact that Satan will do whatever he can to try to destroy God's plan for salvation. He's literally laying out the narrative of the scripture here in this verse. When God refers to his seed, this is in reference to Satan's seed, which is both Satan and the unbelievers that are called the devil's children. We see that in John chapter 8, verse 44. It says, Ye are the father, or ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. But notice what God says. He says there will be a war between the seed of Satan and the seed of woman. Who isn't mentioned here? Adam. Adam isn't mentioned here. Now, it's not clear at first here in this particular part of Scripture as to why Adam would be looked over, but if you were to think about the incarnation of Christ, it's extremely important that God did not mention Adam. Because we understand that God, or Jesus Christ, did not come through the seed of man. He came through God, through the woman. Because if He came through both man and woman, then He would have a sinful nature. We understand that through Scripture... This, this sin of seed, there's the seed of, of sin, so to speak, is passed through the man. One man, sin, entered into the world. And so it's very important that God does not say anywhere here that it passed through the seed of man. It says it passed through the seed of the woman. This verse continues by stating the seed of the woman, which is ultimately Jesus Christ, will bruise the head of Satan, and Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus. By stating that the woman will bruise or the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan, this indicates that Satan will have a moral wound. This is in reference to the ultimate defeat of sin and death through the sacrifice of Christ. And we understand that there will be a time after the great rebellion in which Satan will be ultimately defeated and cast forever in the lake of fire. But ultimately, a sacrifice must be paid on the behalf of our freedom. This is why God says that Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus. Satan will cause Jesus to suffer. And, we did, and he did. 
We read that through all out the uh, earthly ministry of Christ, how he suffered persecution. We know just how painful and agonizing the cross was for our Savior. But ultimately, Jesus gets the victory. So this is really the launching point. This is our first mile marker here, and that is the promised seed. Yes, there was a fall of man, but God says that there will be a seed out of the woman that will bruise the, the, that you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, and he will crush your head. And it's talking about the promised redeemer. But obviously, there's a lot more to cover until the birth of Christ. And so it transitions really into our second mile marker, and that is the line of Seth. And this is where it gets great, the line of Seth. Seth, we understand, is one of Adam and Eve's children mentioned in scriptures. And I, perhaps you've never thought about it this way. We see the mentioning of Seth in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son again, meaning that this obviously wasn't their first child. And he called his name Seth, for God said, uh, For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. The name Seth means to set, place, or appoint. So with this name given to Seth, it is evident in these verses that Seth would play a role in the godly line of Christ. Perhaps the most intriguing statement, though, was found in verse 26. It says, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What this verse indicates is that it was not until the birth of Seth's son Enos that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is in contrast to what is said about the descendants of Cain back in verse 16. It says, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. So to fully understand what's going on here, we understand that Adam and Eve's first two children are Cain and Abel. Satan from the very beginning was trying to throw off God's plan. He said, It's seed of a woman here, and so therefore I'm going to inflict the first two seeds of this woman to make sure that God's plan can't follow through. And so Satan, we understand how the story goes. Satan got in the mix of Cain and Abel, and Cain ended up slaying his brother Abel, and Cain therefore walked away from the Lord. Could you imagine what Satan's thinking at this point? God, your plan didn't work so well. Now, God had it from the very beginning that it wasn't until Seth that that plan of that godly heritage would take place. And so we see. Uh, that Seth was the one that continued that line, but Satan isn't done. As we move forward through the history books in Genesis chapter 6, we see that Satan has been quite busy trying to overthrow the plan of God. And the state of the earth was in complete disarray. We see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And the God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And as we know how the story goes, God commanded Noah and his family to build the ark. And during that entire time, Noah is preaching redemption or he's preaching salvation through the ark. He's come, follow me, trust in Christ. And not one single person followed Noah. Satan literally convinced the entire world that God was not worth following other than the family of Noah. Now, I can only imagine that if Satan didn't think at that time that Cain and Abel worked, that he probably was pretty convinced now that he messed up God's plan. He convinced the entire world. And every single one of them, other than the family of Noah, was destroyed in that flood. But this is when it gets great. It leads us into our mile marker number three. There's a blessings on Shem. 
blessings on Shem. So it goes from it goes from the seed, the promised seed, to Seth, then to Shem. As we continue on, Shem being one of the three sons of Noah, was giving a special blessing in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now to fully understand the impact of this verse, we have to understand the full context. In the previous verse there, Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, that he shall be unto his brethren. Canaan was the son of Noah's son, Ham. Therefore, Canaan being the grandson of Noah. Noah was upset. Because we understand that Noah became drunk in his drunken stupor. His son walked in on him and Noah was unclothed. And the story doesn't go into details as to why Ham did what he did, but he looked upon his father and reveled in the fact that he was naked. We don't believe it was some twisted sexual way. It could have been some way in which he had some kind of pride and he realized that his godly father now was in a very vulnerable state. Realizing what was happening and, and Noah coming to, so to speak, cursed uh, Ham's son, Canaan. Therefore saying that you will be servant of servants. So then when Noah blesses Shem through his descendants, we discover that through Shem's bloodline, the nation of Israel was eventually born. Therefore, when you put verses 25 and 26 together, this is in reference to the fact that Canaan's descendants would become subject to the descendants of Shem. This is fulfilled when the land of Canaan dwelt by the Canaanites were conquered and given to the Israelites as God promised, hence the name, the promised land. This promise is really leading us into our fourth mile marker, and that is mile marker number four, the Abrahamic covenant. So to kind of give you an overview of what's happening here so far is this. You've got, you've got Noah. The whole world is messed up. It's all in disarray. Satan probably thought that he had won. We understand that Noah and his family survived the ark. And then after Noah was, was, I don't know why, but he became drunk and he was sitting there and he was, he was completely naked and his son Ham came in and reveled in that situation there, reveled in that fact, obviously dishonoring his father. The father then retaliated and said, your son Canaan will be cursed and he will be servants of servants. We then see that Shem received that blessing. The descendants of Shem were the Israelites, the descendants of Ham being Canaan were the Canaanites. That promise then fulfilled in the fact that Israel conquered the Canaanites and took over the promised land. This is all leading up to this next mile marker here, the Abrahamic covenant. And before we continue on here, I just want to paint the picture. It seems as if so far that Satan is constantly firing bullets at God and God is dodging them left and right. But to say that and have that viewpoint is an attack on the sovereignty of God. It's not that God is dodging the bullets left and right. It's that God had this plan from the very beginning and Satan cannot keep up because nobody can overthrow the sovereign plan of God. And if that can be a reminder for us this year, as messed up as this world is, what's going on right now is not an attack on the sovereignty of God. It's happening just as God planned it to happen as we can see here in the Old Testament. Let's go into the Abrahamic covenant. What we see here is we fast forward in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We see that Abraham was born several hundred years later. Through the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham being a descendant of Shem, God provides details regarding this blessing of the Redeemer. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you know these verses well. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said unto Abraham, or Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. And I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless him that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the earth be blessed. There are three elements to this promise. There's a blessing of the land. Gave it to him through the promised land. There's a blessing that they would become a great nation, and they did. 
And then there's a blessing that all the families in the earth will be blessed, and that was in the promised Redeemer. But the story continues. As the story goes, in order for Abraham to bless us through this, uh, through this seed, he has to have descendants, right? We understand that Abraham and Sarah didn't have descendants. This is where Satan attacks them again. God comes before Abraham and Sarah and promises that they will have a child. Of course, they laugh because they're older. They're past the biological state of their life in which they can. And so what happens? Sarah takes matters into her own hands, and she convinces, through the temptation of Satan, she convinces Abraham that she obviously can't have kids. God made a mistake. Maybe he means a different way. And so Abraham then goes by the request of his wife and sleeps with his handmaiden. And who was born out of his handmaiden? It was Ishmael. Ishmael obviously not being the man of God. Could you imagine what Satan's thinking at that point? Look, I messed up his descendants. Now, now he's not even sleeping with his wife. And God comes back and says, that's not how this plan works. No, no, no. You are going to have a son. And that's when Isaac was born. You see what's happening here is, is, a, is Satan keeps throwing things back at God. And God says, that, that's not the plan. My plan was from the very beginning. Isaac then is born, which leads us into our fifth mile marker here this morning. And that is descendants of Isaac. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, God tells Sarah, Sarah, thy wife um, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him from an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. So again, it was established from the very beginning that Isaac would be the seed of Abraham that would carry the promise. Once again, this proves that even when Satan tried to overthrow the plan of God, God was and will always be several steps ahead. But it continues to get interesting because Satan's not going to stop his tax. He's not going to stop to try to throw those things in the middle of all of this. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau being the older, Jacob being the younger. Therefore, Isaac being the one that would receive the birthright or the blessing. But God in his sovereign plan did not choose Esau to carry the seed. He chose Jacob, which leads us to our final mile marker here, or sixth one, not the final one. Yeah, this is sixth one. This is the final one this morning. Mile marker number six, and that is the descendants of Jacob. If you want to hold your finger here, go back to Romans chapter 9. I, I loved that section when we were there. Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul states in verses 10 through 13, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, and as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Verse 13 is in reference to Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 through 23, which states, and the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. As history goes, Jacob was one of the patriarchs of the great nation of Israel, where the descendants of Esau were the Edomites who are fierce enemies of the nation of Israel, once again, exactly fulfilling the promises of God. We only went through the first six. We still have ten more to go on these mile markers that lead up to the birth of Christ. But my prayer is that this would be an incursion to you here this morning. 
that as we celebrate perhaps the craziest Christmas that we've ever experienced in our lifetime because of all these shutdowns, and as we are going through heartache and disappointments, may we be encouraged in the fact that God is still on His throne. And even though we can't see what's going on here right now, God is above all of this, and He knows exactly how this is lining up with His overall sovereign plan. May we be encouraged by this and these mile markers that lead up to the birth of Christ.